I would like to talk this morning about why it is so important for us to pray together as a people. This is Prayer Week 87 at Bethlehem, and we begin with concerted prayer because the things that matter most to us, the things that matter most to us, can't be done without God. The new birth, conviction for sin, forgiveness, faith in Christ, a warm love for the Savior and His cause, intense worship, passion for justice, commitment to frontier missions. These are the essentials and the crucial things in life. And it doesn't matter whether I am alive at the end of this year or whether I am accepted or whether I am good looking or whether I am rich or whether I have a home or clothes or a car or a VCR. These things are wholly secondary. They gain whatever value they have from how they attach to the essentials. And no matter how devout or strong or wise I or you are, we can't make the essentials happen without God. That's why we begin a week or a year with prayer. Because prayer week is just a grand church-wide admission. I need you. We need you. What matters isn't getting done. Left to ourselves, nothing but religious machinery goes on. Until the Holy Spirit is poured out on our church, it's all form. And it may be fun for a lot of people, but it isn't glorifying to God. No one is born again. People are not convicted of sins. Families are not healed. Missions are not dynamically promoted until God comes. And He comes when we pray. We need God very much. Let me show you a little bit of why. You'll hear more tonight from Peter about the survey that you filled out and that we took last Sunday night. 255 of you filled out the survey concerning the devotional life of the people in our church. Here are three facts from the survey that I discerned. Forty percent of our people said they read the Bible fewer than three times a week. Forty-six percent of our people said that they read the Bible on an average of less than five minutes a day. And 59 percent of our people do not set aside a daily time for prayer. When I saw those statistics, I went through a a complex of five emotions as I've been able to discern them since Friday. My first emotion was the desire to quit the pastorate. 
Because after six and a half years of preaching and leading, if there is no more devotion to Christ, no more priority of communion with Him, no more delight in His Word, no more dependence upon Him, then maybe I'm not in the right calling. I think that was probably about 90% self-pity. And I preached to myself again the sermon from last Sunday night on perseverance. And the second emotion was anger at worldliness. The forces of this world that hold so many Christians in bondage. When dependence upon prayer and commitment to meditation on the Word of God is so low in the priority list of so many of our people, it is a sign of very great love for the world. And I hate love for the world because the Bible says, he who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. I Hate worldliness. And then I preached to myself the sermon from James 1.19. Be slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And the third emotion I experienced was grief and disappointment that probably we will not change this city after all. No matter what I said last Sunday morning. Not while the temperature of spiritual delight in God and passionate dependence upon prayer is so small. It was a sobering prospect after last Sunday's message. The fourth emotion was contrition and a sense of being rebuked and broken in myself that I have congratulated myself that Bethlehem is a remarkable church, and it isn't a remarkable church. It is a sinful and weak church with a sinful and weak pastor. And the fifth emotion, which I bring mainly to the pulpit this morning, is one of longing, and I believe it's the longing of love, that by God's grace... He might, in his mercy, be pleased to use me to awaken a delight in the word of God in your heart and a passion for prayer. I want you to be able to say with David, not under any constraint at all, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Sweeter than honey are thy words. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's all I want. Is for God to be pleased in his sovereignty to use me to awaken taste buds for spiritual honey in the word of God on the tongues of your heart. And then I want God to awaken the conviction that E.M. Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer, expressed like this. God's acquaintance is not made by pop calls, 
God does not bestow his gifts on the casual or hasty comers and goers. Much with God alone is the secret of knowing him and of influence with him. He yields to the persistency of a faith that knows him. He bestows his richest gifts upon those who declare their desire for and appreciation of those gifts by the constancy of their and the earnestness of their importunity. So I come to the pulpit this morning with a desire in my heart that God might be pleased to use his word yet to awaken a love for the word of God that is so addicting you can't live without it and a dependence on prayer that is so profound you are frightened to enter the day without a set time of engagement with God. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. My goal specifically this morning is to try to help you see afresh what I'm sure you've seen before, the value and the delights of praying with other people. Praying with other people, other Christians. Corporate praying, social praying. My text is the sermon, from the Sermon on the Mount is, is the Lord's Prayer and some verses surrounding it. And what I want you to see, first of all, is the pronouns of the Lord's Prayer. Verse 9, our Father. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we Forgive our debtors. Verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, my own conviction is that Jesus crafted this prayer with pronouns like these. That is, instead of I and my, me. In order to invite his disciples to pray together and not just alone. These pronouns are an invitation to pray together. Now, I know that you can say these pronouns alone. You can get alone in your bedroom and say, Our Father. But if that word is not empty, you at least mentally have to reach out with it and say, I belong to a family of people. When you say, Our Father, forgive us. Lead us not into temptation. Give us, that is them as well as me, our bread. At least when you're alone, mentally, you have to be reaching out and embracing a family of believers. But surely it would be very strange and awkward if we took these words of social life upon our lips again and again and again in prayer and never experienced it in prayer. That would be strange indeed. And I don't think it would be a fulfillment of the Lord's intention. I believe these words are given to us as an invitation to pray this prayer and all that it inspires together with other Christians in various kinds of of groups. Now, what I'd like to do is to take that simple truth and to go back to verse five, six, seven and eight. And get an observation from each of those verses and refine our understanding of corporate prayer. Let's do that. Verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. This verse teaches us that praying together must never be motivated by a desire to exalt yourself above others and be praised and admired for the advancement of your piety or your prayer ability. This verse is not a condemnation of praying together. Because when you exalt yourself above other people, desiring that they sort of look up to you and see you standing up there on your little prayer plateau, that is not togetherness. It's the opposite of Christian togetherness. That's separating yourself off from the group and saying, hey, look at me. I'm standing off here in a special position praying so that you can admire me. That's not what I mean by praying together. In fact, when you pray together, at least this is my experience, very often the effect is that the root of that kind of individualistic pride is severed by the very togetherness of the praying. It happens to me again and again on Monday mornings when I pray with my godly staff to hear them pray. And I say... That's the way I should have started this prayer. That's the way I should have prayed last night. That's the way I am rebuked, corrected, and humbled by the humble outpourings of prayer from a Tom Stella or a Shar Ransom or a Peter Nelson or a Steve Roy when he's here. These things help me get off my plateau where I thought I had make, been making progress. So corporate prayer And this condemnation of individualistic self-exaltation are opposites. And corporate prayer is an antidote to this kind of thing. I think it's a strange thing that we could imagine people making advancement in prayer alone when they never absorb the praying of others together. It would be like telling a child or believing that a child should become a good conversationalist, but every time the company comes over and the conversation gets serious, you send him out of the room to to play by himself. And you expect him then to get good at it. How, How will you make advancement in the life of your prayer when you do not pray with others who draw you up and send you deeper and broaden your heart. So verse 5 teaches us that praying together is not self-exaltation, must not be, but rather a means to avoiding it and growing in our prayer life. Verse 6, But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And the father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this verse teaches that private prayer is absolutely essential and indispensable. This verse is a bell 
that's sounding in this passage not to take the corporateness of prayer to an extreme. People do that and say, all this Sermon on the Mount is about corporate personality and all of Christian life is social life. And this this verse is a remarkable verse. From verses 5 to verse 15, all the pronouns in Greek are plural. Except in this verse where all six of them are singular. Now, you can't see that in English because the word you in English can be both singular and plural. It can't in Greek. All of them in verse 6 are singular. It just leaps off the page out of the context of plurality and socialness. It is a loud clarion warning. Don't you just pray together. Don't you just pray as a family. Don't you just pray in groups. Get alone with God. That's what this verse is teaching. They complement each other. They're not against each other. The Our Father and the My Father are complementary. We can pray in solitude with the blessing of this verse. And we can pray together with the blessing of the Lord's Prayer. And I believe it's so crucial that they feed on one another. Verse 7. And in praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now that verse is teaching that idle, careless, empty talk ought not to be a part of praying. Empty repetitions, counting beads or prayer wheels or flipping cards or anything that is mindless and idle and careless has no place in the prayer life of a Christian. Do you believe that you can pray all night and not be guilty of this verse? Vain repetitions. And empty, idle words. Well, I do for one very simple reason. Jesus prayed all night without sinning. You can pray for 40 things from 30 different angles each using 20 different texts from each angle. That'll do the night. Just labor to learn to pray the Scriptures And time will not be the issue. You will fill up any amount of time your will is inclined to devote to praying if you let prayer be the Scriptures turned to God with longing. Corporate praying is a great antidote to empty words, isn't it? I fight Ten times as hard against careless, empty phrases in my study at home alone than I do with my staff on Monday morning for 45 minutes. Why? Because when I know that right here at my side is someone listening to me, my mind is engaged and I don't fall into nonsense. But at home, how ashamed I am sometimes. I'll go for two or three minutes and all of a sudden... Wake up. 
What on earth have I been saying to the Almighty as I bow before His throne and He's watching me babbling away and my mind is totally in neutral, out of gear. I haven't a clue what I've said for two and a half minutes. So ashamed I feel when that happens. It's a slap in God's face that people can hold my attention and God can't. You've all experienced that and indicted yourself for it. We're so weak. The Spirit is willing. We're so weak in our flesh. But listen, corporate praying is such a help in this regard. None of you prays nonsense out of your mouth when you're sitting with two, three, four, five, ten other people. What comes out of your mouth hangs together. You think about it. You, you exert more energy in your mind to say words that have content rather than nothingness in them. And so it's such a good school of prayer to be with other people and to pray together. Verse 8. Do not be like them, that is the Gentiles who multiply empty words, for your Father knows that you what you need before you ask Him. This is a great verse to encourage us that God is not disinclined to answer our prayers and give us what we need. Now you may say, well, how do you know that's what it means? Because all it says is God knows what I need. It doesn't say anything about God's inclination. Really? I know that because of the way it's used here and a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 31 to 32. Look at this with me. It's such a beautiful repetition of this same phrase to show us just what content it has for Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 31, it says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, how will I finish my work, or pay the bills? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, now what's the point of that? Here's the point. You have a father... He is up on the needs of his children, and therefore, you don't need to be anxious. There's only one implication that could have. God loves to meet the needs of his children. He loves to meet the needs of his children for the asking. That's what's in this verse. It's just, it's not some kind of bare cognition that he has an awareness of the needs of his children. It means he knows and he is inclined to meet the needs of his children. And so the value of corporate prayer in relation to verse 8 is this. When you get together with other people to pray, you are forced to reckon with the fact that there's a family. And a family has a father. And the father who called us to pray is the kind of father who says, I will give my covenant to them And I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will pursue them with good and mercy all their days with all my heart and soul, says the Lord. That's what we looked at New Year's Eve. God loves to meet the needs of His children. So let's review what we've seen. Praying together helps guard us from individualistic pride against or over other people that sets you off from them. It calls you down to pray with them. Second, praying together does not take the place of private prayer. 
Rather, they feed on each other. Third, praying together reminds us that we are part of a larger family with a father who knows our needs. And fourth, praying together protects us from carelessness and mindlessness and words that are empty when they come out of our mouths. So I hope you see the importance and the value of praying together. And now I want to close by taking you on a whirlwind tour of the book of Acts and show you in five minutes what happened when the early church prayed like this. The early church obeyed Jesus in this regard. They prayed together all the time. And I want you to see what happened when they prayed. And I'm going to go so fast that you may not even want to try to follow me in your Bible, but you can hear the results of this praying. Chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus has told them, go to Jerusalem and wait. They go and it says, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And 120 of them got together and for 10 days they prayed. And what happened? Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit fell. Peter preached a sermon as a result of that. 3,000 people were converted. After the conversions, what did they do? It says in chapter 2, verse 42... And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And the result, next verse, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Chapter 4, verse 24 to 30. Peter and John had been arrested. They're released. They go to their friends. What do they do? They get together and have a big prayer meeting. This magnificent God-honoring prayer in verses 24 to 30 is done in the midst of the people. And then look what happens in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Where does boldness come from? In witness. It comes from corporate praying in the church. Acts chapter 6. The first deacons are chosen and what do they do? First of all, they gather, lay hands on them and they pray together. And the result, the next verse, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 12, verses 5 and 12. Peter's in jail. They've just chopped off the head of James, the Lord's brother, Herod has. He's about to kill Peter. What does the church do? They pray all night long for Peter. What does God do? He opens the jail with an angel. You know what Peter does as soon as he's out of jail? He says, hmm, wonder where I should go. I'm going to go to Mary's house. Why? That's where they pray. And he found them there. And it says... Verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered together and were praying. It was the middle of the night. This is why he got out of jail. And the church advanced, chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Paul and Barnabas and the other prophets and teachers were praying, worshiping and fasting. What happens? The Holy Spirit says, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. And there's the beginning of the Gentile mission. And that's why Christianity is in Minneapolis today. Because prophets were praying in Antioch. Chapter 14, verse 23. What happens every time a church is founded? Leaders are chosen and Paul prays with his leaders. He prays over them. 
and churches are born. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Paul and Silas are in jail, in a dungeon, feet and hands in stocks. It is midnight, Luke says very specifically. And what are they doing at midnight after being beaten with rods, hands and feet in stocks, in a cold, dark dungeon at midnight? They're singing duets to God. They're singing Paul and Barnabas. I'll bet Paul couldn't sing a wit. Just like Brad. I just love people like that who sing when they can't sing. Just joyful noises in the middle of the night. And what does God do? He sends an earthquake. He just clears his throat for his people. And a jailer gets converted. A church gets established. The best church Paul ever built. They supported him all the rest of his life. And he loved them to death. That's what happened when they prayed together in the middle of the night. One more, and then we're done. Chapter 20, verse 36. This is the most touching and the most moving of all. It's where I get the phrase, sweet hour, O-U-R, of prayer. Paul was a very tender man. He cried a lot, and he had a lot of people who loved him very much. And this is probably one of the most tender scenes from his life. He's saying goodbye for the last time to the Asians, the people he'd spent three years with in Ephesus. He doesn't want to go to Ephesus lest he get hindered on his way to Jerusalem. He goes to Miletus, sends word, come down and see me. All the elders come down. They meet on the beach. He speaks to them from verses 17 on down to verse 35 in chapter 20 of Acts. And at the end, here's what happens. Verse 36. When he had spoken thus, he knelt down. And he prayed with them all and they wept and they embraced Paul and they kissed him. We've tasted some of that on Sunday night, haven't we? When we've sent people off to China and Cameroon and Liberia. Well, let's close with a summary. Why should you care about praying together? Not because I say so. And not because the Bible says so, but because the Holy Spirit is outpoured when the people of God pray together. Signs and wonders are done through the hands of the apostles when the people of God pray together. Boldness in witnessing happens when we pray. The conversion of many priests, the sending out of frontier missionaries, the establishment of new churches, the rescue of apostles from prison, and last but not least, the sweetening of all our togetherness. The sweetness of my breakfast table with my sons and my wife every morning. The sweetness for 45 minutes with my staff every Monday morning. The sweetness of Wednesday nights together in prayer and the sweetness that I anticipate this week at 7 o'clock in the morning, at noon, Wednesday night, and all night Friday night. I'll be at all those meetings. I hope that you will be at some of those meetings. Let's stand for prayer together.